Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. Eric Berry. Hey, y'all. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest, and that's Hongli Lai. Hello. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. You want to just introduce yourself real quick? I mean, I think those of us that are on the show know you from uh, Fusion and Fusion Passenger, but any other big things you want to mention? Well, um, other than Fusion, I have been involved in the open source community for a long time, even way before Fusion. I've been in Linux since around 2000 and contributed to various open source projects like uh, GNOME, uh, uh, even Nginx, and, and inside Ruby community, I've contributed to Ruby and Rails itself. I'm other than being a developer um, of Passenger, I'm also an entrepreneur, and that makes me, I think, compared to a lot of developers, maybe a bit unusual in the sense that I'm I, I'm a developer and an entrepreneur, entrepreneur combination, and I've come to understand that that combination it seems to be relatively rare. I'm happy to help people out, um, to, to coach them, to give them advice. And uh, I, I just love other people learning from me and being happy and maybe to learn something from them in return as well. Nice. I, I love talking to uh, developer entrepreneurs. And, and I think that's something that in different ways, the three panelists on the show all and I identify with in various ways as well. So Cool. So I, we were talking a little bit before the, in the pre-show and I alluded to your work impacting my career very early on. And I want to give you a story. And I think I've shared this before on, on, uh, uh, on the podcast, but you came in like a white knight, like on a big white horse, like shining and, and ready to, to, to help the world. Because back in 2009, I believe, 2008, 2009, I worked in Ruby on Rails back when it was like 1.2.3. And I worked for a company... I won't name them, but they were not, you know, they were just a pretty rough company to work for. So we built the whole application that we had in Ruby on Rails. And when we tried to deploy it, we just could, we couldn't get the servers right because it was running on Mongrel. And it was oh, a night. The good old days. Yes, the good old days. <laughs> I think all of us have been there. So running on Mongrel and uh, just keeping these Mongrel these mongrels up and running it was, was a terrible experience. And so I remember you announcing. Fusion Passenger, when it came out, I remember when it came out, and I was so excited because finally I knew that this would be the first big step to making Ruby on Rails mainstream. Similar to like how, you know, PHP had just simple, you know, the PHP mods for, for Apache, you built a Fusion Passenger, which allowed Ruby on Rails for, for Apache. Once we had that, life completely changed for me. 
And in fact, I still, I'm so proud of it, but I'm one of the first people to ever donate to your project on wow. your website. And for the longest time, I was in round one of the donations. Wow. For the longest time, I could still go there and look at it, but I haven't been able to find it. That disappeared. But I want you to know, like, very early on, I attribute a lot of Ruby on Rails success to the fact that you built Fusion Passenger and made a very simple pathway for people to be able to deploy. Without that, honestly, to me, it wouldn't have caught on. It wouldn't have caught on nearly as quickly or nearly as well because it was so cumbersome to, to keep these servers up and running. So I wanted to thank you for that. You've impacted my career and I think a lot of people's careers without them even knowing it. Wow, that's that's a great story. You're very welcome. And um, impacting you in that way was exactly what I wanted to do. I believe that software should serve people, um, and computers are there to help you, not to not to make you not to make you do boring things to to tell them what to do. Oh, absolutely, hundred percent. Where's Where's uh, Fusion at now? Is it still being used heavily, or is it? So I know that. Fusion Passenger, is, does that compete with Nginx and the Nginx integrations that started coming out with Puma and all that stuff? Um, well, Nginx does not integrate with Puma. Actually, you could say that the way Puma works is fundamentally the same as how Mongrel works. There has been some improvement, but the fundamental execution model is the same. And they're not going after the ease of use use case at all while we do. So even nowadays with Puma, uh, even though it is the default setup in Rails, we are much more after trying to make things easy for people, trying to streamline things, making it so they don't have to do things that they shouldn't have to do. There's competition in the sense that uh, a lot of people still use Puma. And if you use Puma, you don't use Passenger. But the approach is still very different. Yeah, the last time I set up a Puma production setup, yeah. You wind up doing the proxy pass stuff to a Puma setup. and um, I mean, there's a Capistrano Puma plugin that makes it pretty easy to, to you know, deploy to once you have it set up. But yeah, Passenger is a whole lot easier to set up because you just install it and then you just touch the restart file and you're done. So about, um, I think about a month ago, maybe a little bit more than a month ago, we interviewed Stefan Wintermeyer. We talked about active deployment or a way to very easily with a, a single step deploy Rails applications. I think a lot of the confusion and complexity that you brought to the table has kind of disappeared in a way from a lot of developers' minds, mine included. This is why I've been using Heroku pretty much for, for most of my career, even though it's it tends to be more expensive. It's also something that I can rely on. Where does uh, Fusion fit into that story where there is a simplistic deployment process where maybe you don't need to go through something as expensive as Heroku, but you don't need to uh, essentially learn Kubernetes to get everything up and running properly? That is very hard to say. Well, the, the landscape has different, definitely changed uh, um, in the past few years as well. As you say, there there's now platform as a service that just makes things much easier. And, and also, the, one of the reasons why Rails was perceived as very difficult uh, way back Passenger 1 was released was because people were just not used to do things 
the way that Mongol tried to do things. Whereas if we look at, the, uh, at how things are now, spinning up a standalone web server and then setting up the reverse proxy has kind of become the standard, not only in the Ruby community, but in other programming language communities as well, such as Node.js. So uh, you, you could say that the ease of use that that, that passenger is going after, it's no longer as important anymore nowadays. I think that if we want to make things even easier and if, if we want to make things uh, even more streamlined, the only way to do that, I believe, is to, is to take care of the hosting part itself. Right now, Fusion's product offerings are... Uh, focused on the uh, people who are after self-hosting things, who want to install infrastructures themselves, but increasingly the infrastructure itself is becoming the bottleneck and people don't want to bother with that anymore. So from business perspective, it would be wise to go into the hosting side, but uh, we haven't yet decided whether we want to. So there's not much I can tell you about how Fusion will deal with that. that makes sense. So tell me about uh, real quick, you recently launched uh, Fusion 6. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is, what's new in there, and maybe elaborate a bit more on the offering? Because honestly, I didn't know that you had your own hosting solution until this very moment. We don't have our own hosting solution. I'm sorry if I uh, oh. wasn't clear about that. <laughs> I was speaking hypothetically about how that would be a good idea if we want to level up, but uh, but, but I was saying that we uh, we haven't decided yet whether we want to go that way. As for what is new in Passenger 6, the biggest thing is generic language support, meaning that Passenger nowadays supports all programming languages, not just Ruby. And um, maybe if you knew, for a number of years now, Passenger had already supported Python and Node.js. And that's because... From the start, Passenger was architected to be internally modular so that you could theoretically add more programming language support if you want to. And for many years, we have only tried to expand to the Node.js and Python markets, and we have been very careful with that because we don't want to um, deliver a bad product to other communities. But now with Passenger 6, we literally support everything. Uh, and the way, way it works is similar to the Heroku proc file. You tell Passenger how uh, to start your application on a certain port, and the Passenger manages that app for you. Cool. And so when someone is making a choice between Puma or Passenger, so if you go to something like Elastic Beanstalk, they give you the two options. Do you want your Rails app to be launched with Puma or with Passenger? When would someone choose one over the other? You know, does Passenger have a smaller memory footprint? Is it faster to generate the HTML? Uh, what makes it better over Puma? Passenger gives you more flexibility in the sense that it integrates with Nginx. So I'm talking about the Elastic Beanstalk use case here. Uh, if you use Passenger standalone there, then you are able to... Then what you're actually running is a full-fledged Passenger and Nginx combination. So you get the Nginx for free, and you can make use of Nginx features, such as uh, rewrite rules or caching or whatever. And other than that, Passenger also, by default, has a number of optimization features built in that just works without you having to configure anything. For example, Passenger uh, serves all static assets directly from Nginx without having to go through Rails. And also things like 
the Rails page caching mechanism that just works with Passenger. And Passenger directly serves the page cache files from Nginx and not, not through Rails and all that sort of things. There are also management tools such as the Passenger status tools that allows you to inspect the server status, how many clients are connected, how many processes are running, that sort of thing that uh, would probably be very useful. Yeah, absolutely. And where do you see the f- future of Passenger going with stuff like HTTP2 and that kind of stuff? Is there plans to kind of have it just magically work if you're using Fusion Passenger to be able to stream multiple requests on the same connection? Or is that something that we're going to have to modify Rails apps to accommodate as well? With regards to HTTP2, you do not need any modifications. It already works out of the box today. The only thing you need is to use an Nginx installation that supports HTTP2, and then everything just works. Internally, Passenger speaks with Rails in, with an internal protocol, but that doesn't really matter. Uh, as long as the front-end Nginx has HTTP2 enabled, then clients are able to make use of HTTP2 concurrency without you having to change anything on the back end. Cool. I know we have other topics to cover, but this is so fascinating to me. How do you see people integrating Fusion into their deploy strategy? So I'm looking at some of the features that you offer, even on the open source features, you know, that aren't provided through Unicorn or Puma, such as multi-threading and uh, a multi-tenant apps, which is pretty huge, turbo caching, process auto-scaling, all this kind of stuff. What's the typical deploy strategy that you see people using with this? Do they often just set up a, uh, they set up a single Apache server and use something like Capistrano to do the deployment? Or how, how do you see people integrating Fusion into their, their process? It is very diverse. But the trends that I notice are, are these. I don't see a lot of Apache usage anymore nowadays, except from a few um, traditional companies that are on traditional infrastructure. But uh, most people are just on Nginx. I also see that people prefer lots of small servers instead of several big servers. This is probably connected to the microservice hype that's going on. And I also see that more and more people are using Docker. Mm-hmm. And um, with, with regards to the latter, I hope that people are sticking to Docker best practices, such as not running things inside Docker as root, because all the tutorials out there still teach you how to run things at root, uh, as root, and that scares me. Yeah. So are there any issues with running Docker and Passenger, or is that a well-streamlined path as well? That is a well-streamlined path. Uh, we provide a base image that already has Nginx installed, it already has Passenger installed. You can just use it. And the base image is customized to follow certain best practices, such as running, uh, running things inside the container as a normal user. But even if you don't use our base image, uh, because our base image is based on Ubuntu, and maybe you don't want that, maybe you want things to be smaller or whatever, then uh, installing Passenger inside your own custom Docker environment is not very hard. Yeah. Every time I want to minimize the size of my Docker containers, you know, because I like using the Ubuntu Docker image as well, you know, I'll try out Alpine or something, and it's always a headache. 
Alpine just strips so much out of it that what you would normally think should be there and available just isn't. So I find myself just pushing a Ubuntu, customized Ubuntu registry to the registry. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Now, I kind of, and we've talked our our way around a lot of the setup for this, I think, but I ran across your article where you were talking about memory bloat in Ruby. And you wrote this, what, like a month ago? Uh, Yes, Um, something like that. And it it was really interesting to me. I mean, it it also took me back to some of my computer science classes from college where we talked about some of this stuff, you know, with the paging and, and heap allocation and things like that. And, and I'm curious, this has been something that we've talked about in the Ruby community for quite a long time, actually, is, you know, why does my Ruby application take up so much memory? And, you know, you see people with solutions where they just have a cron job that basically goes in and kills Ruby processes that have been alive for more than a few hours and things like that. And I was wondering if, if we could just talk through this, because it's kind of fundamental stuff when it comes to memory management. But I, uh, in a lot of cases, I don't think that people are really pushed to understand what exactly this, the server is doing under the hood, so to speak, when it's allocating memory. So yeah, uh, first, first off, though, I was wondering, could, could you just explain why you wrote this and, and who you were hoping to uh, reach with it? The first reason is that I saw this problem in production. So at Fusion, we run a small proxy server for pulling Debian and RPM packages for passenger from Amazon S3 and then surfing them uh, through through a web server. And this proxy server is written in Ruby. It's really, really simple. It basically transforms the URL to something else, fetches it from Amazon S3, writes it out with maybe a few headers modified, and that's it. And it runs inside passenger enterprise with multi-threading on, uh, and performance is fine. But I saw that it used 1.3 gigabytes of memory. And I thought, this is ridiculous. It's just a small proxy server. It yeah, does almost nothing. And there is no reason why it should use that much memory. And the proxy server is so simple. It's, it's like literally 300 lines of code or something. There is no way it has a memory leak. And I, I could throw money at this problem and it only probably cost me something like $5 a month or so, or so for the extra RAM. But developer inside me feels the pain of... I feel the computer having pain, so to say. <laughs> so I, yeah, yeah so, so, so I just wanted to get to the bottom of this. And at the same time, I thought that, hey, maybe if I do a research on this and I can tell and, and I can figure out a solution for this, because I'm not the only one having this problem, then uh, maybe it will help other people. So that's why I began. That makes sense. Is that proxy open source somewhere where we can actually see the code and go, oh, yeah, this is tiny? Uh, unfortunately not. Okay, that's fair. But yeah, so small small program, it's taking up a, a gig, almost a gig and a half of memory. So so what's going on there? How, how do people need to think about this problem in order to understand what's happening? And then is there a good solution for it? The, the gist of the story is it's, it's, it is not Ruby's fault. It is also not your application's fault, or, or at least uh, not always. Uh, the thing is, fault. yes, so, so, so Ruby or actually any application makes use of a system library called the memory allocator. And the memory allocator takes care of allocating a memory for you. 
But allocating memory is a complex algorithm, and no matter how you allocate memory, there is always going to be a workload in which that algorithm does not perform well, either in terms of time or in terms of uh, waste. Uh, because usually, if you allocate a lot of memory and you do, and and you try to keep that memory and not releasing it, then generally that strategy results in better performance at the uh, risk of having more waste of allocating too much memory. Uh, and the reverse is also true. If you are very memory efficient, then that means that you do not do any kind of caching, and so you pay the price in terms of performance. And what happens is that. Um, in case of multi-threaded programs, the memory allocator is written in such a way that it prefers to allocate a lot of memory and just waste a lot of memory on caching. And in very, very CPU-intensive workloads, that strategy gives you something like a 10% performance improvement. The memory allocator is written by Red Hat, and they have enterprise customers with very large servers with tons and tons of memory. So for their customers, it is the right trade-off. For everybody else, it's probably not the best trade-off because we don't want that disproportional trade-off of, uh, of memory waste and performance. Yeah, that makes sense. And I remember going through the classes and they, you know, they showed us essentially in C, you have the malloc call and the free call. And so it just says, okay, I've got some memory space here. And we went into paging and all that stuff, you know, and wrote a, yeah. you know, a system page manager thingy that it, it would essentially throw out the least recently used page and things like that, yeah. you know, and pull that into memory or not. But yeah, so you have the heap and it allocates stuff on the heap. So it just takes the next, basically the next space in memory. And then when you're done with whatever that is, when the garbage collector in Ruby or, you know, in C, you'd call free. And then you tell it what you're pulling out. Yeah. It would go in and it just deletes it out of the heap. And then you've got this hole in your memory, right? Yeah. yeah. Although yeah. I have to say that um, the default memory allocator in Linux, the yeah. algorithm that it uses is very suboptimal. So there are better overall strategies that perform better overall. And that's why a lot of people resort to using JE malloc as the memory allocator that usually both performs better and uses less memory. What's uh, the difference? Uh, you mean the difference between the system allocator and JE malloc? Yeah. What's the difference in the algorithm that it uses? It is very hard to explain over a podcast. I would need to really draw diagrams and such. If I were to give it a try... One of the strategies that JE malloc uses is to divide allocations in size classes, meaning that it divides your memory in buckets of increasing size. So, so, so let's say there's a bucket of 16 kilobyte, and then there's a next bucket of, let's say, 20 kilobyte, and after that, there's 32 kilobyte, etc. If you malloc a piece of memory, then it looks up the, right, um, the bucket that is associated with that size, and it tries to allocate in there. And if you follow this strategy, then it means that for each bucket, each bucket only contains objects of the same size. Mm -hmm. And that is a very good property to have for a memory manager because that simplifies algorithms a lot and it also reduces fragmentation. The system memory allocator in Linux does not use that strategy. And instead, it tries to 
it, it does not have size classes at all, and uh, it, it it tries to find the best location in memory to to put an allocation. But that also means that your heap gets fragmented really easily because you you are not able to work with objects of the same size. It is probably hard to understand uh, why there's a problem here uh, without visualizations. Uh, so so uh, maybe one of these days I should write a blog post to explain this concept. Yeah, that that would be great, or you know, a video, or maybe maybe I'll schedule a time with you and we can hop on YouTube and share a screen and make some really terrible looking drawings. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, can you tell us a little bit about Gemalic? I know that that's something that's been debated as being the, kind of the silver bullet, or at least could be the silver bullet in this story. What are your thoughts on that? I think JE Malalong is great. It is actively developed. It seems to be way more actively developed than the system allocator uh, in Linux. The system allocator seems to be very conservative, and they have been using uh, pretty much the same algorithm with only a few minor tweaks for a very long time. And I have no idea why they don't update their algorithm to something smarter. Maybe they don't want to upset existing enterprise customers that rely on stability or something. But the memory fragmentation problem that results in so much memory bloat is something that not only impacts Ruby, but could potentially impact all multi-threaded programs in Linux. And in fact, I have heard that it did affect Redis, which is why they changed to JE malloc. Uh, they had the same problem. I heard that Firefox also had problem with that, which is why they also switched to JE malloc. Would Ruby VM then just need to switch over? I mean, I say just, not knowing how much it is, but I mean, is that essentially one solution to make it better? Is just what happened to happen have to happen in the Ruby VM? Uh, it, it is one possible solution, but there are caveats, which is why Ruby Core has not accepted uh, to adopt it as default. One of the arguments that came by was that the system memory allocator has, cer- has certain security features that JE malloc may not have, mm. and, they want, and, and they don't want to do away with that. Another reason is that JE malloc 3 results in memory reduction, but JE malloc 5 does not, or at least some versions of JE malloc 5 do not, or was it some settings of JE malloc 5 do not? I, I believe some people in the community have researched that better than, than I did, how exactly JE malloc 5 does or does not result in memory reduction, but that's one of the problems RubyCore has with uh, JE malloc, because Ruby distributors, they don't like it if you fendor a library inside Ruby. So they try to split things up into different packages. But if the JE malloc that is shipped with the Linux distribution is of the wrong version, then you still have the memory bloating problem. Uh, and, and, and that's why Ruby Core is hesitant. Yeah, it makes sense. So when we're talking about memory in our Ruby processes, how do you identify that you have a memory bloat issue versus a memory leak within your code? Well, I, I can't say for general strategies, but in my specific case, I just manually verify that my code has no memory leak. In my case, I could do that because my code is so simple. 
if you're asking a general way to find whether your Ruby application has a memory leak or not, then, then I'm afraid there are, as far as I know, no tools out there to, uh, to, to help you other than manual code reviews. Yeah, so I know we're talking on a podcast, so visual aids are uh, impediments here, but what would be an example of how someone could accidentally introduce a memory leak into a Rails application? Pretty much the only way to have a real memory leak in garbage-collected languages is to have unintended references to dead objects. So for example, let's say that on every request, you create a large string, and then you add it to, the, to, an, to a long-living array, and you never remove it from that array. In garbage-collected languages, that is a memory leak. And that really depends on whether you intend to remove it from that array or not. If you do intend it to remove it from the array, or at least you intended not to have it stay there forever, but you don't actually do it, then that's a memory leak. Because sometimes when I see my Rails application first start off, you know, I boot up the server deploy, it has a very low subset of memory usage. But then as time goes on, it creeps up a bit. And then it creeps up a, a bit more and more and more until it maxes out on that particular process at like one gig of memory or whatever. So is that a sign of a memory leak or is that just a sign of you know, things just working smoothly and it's just caching the information it needs and there's nothing to worry about? It is, it is the latter. The, this kind of pattern where memory usage goes up over time but it also peaks and does, and does not continue to go up, that is a typical example of uh, the caching effect. But this caching is probably not the kind of caching that you think it is because it, it, it does not work on the Ruby level or even the application level. It is something on the system level, and it is part of the Ruby memory bloating problem that uh, I described in my work. It is overhead from, part of it is overhead from the memory allocator that um, memory that the memory allocator knows is free, but does not actually release back to the kernel. So next time you, the application requests a piece of memory to be allocated, then the memory allocator will take it from those free but not released back to the kernel areas. So from the point of view of the kernel, a lot of memory is not free, but from the point of view of the memory allocator, a lot of memory is free. And it is that distinction that, that results in you seeing that memory usage goes up over time, but also peaks. Yeah, absolutely. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects. And that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them, and if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com rogues. That's triplebyte.com byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through Triple Byte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. So if I have a process, let's say I have some little proxy thing that I wrote, and it's 300-ish lines, and I set it up 
and it's running and it's taking up a gig and a half of memory. And, you know, I'm saying, okay, well, I could throw $5 at this, but I really don't want to. I really want to fix this. What do I do? The most pragmatic solution is to set a magical environment variable called malloc arena max. You set that to number two. You make sure that when you start your application, that Ruby sees that environment variable, and then it's magically fixed. You will magically see your memory usage drop in half. I and... love magical solutions. That's why I use Rails. But for those of us that don't, uh, do you want to explain what that does? It reduces the number of glibc uh, memory arenas. So just previously, I told you about the caching effect that the memory allocator doesn't really release memory back, uh, doesn't really like to release memory back to the kernel. If you set that environment variable, then you effectively reduce the amount of memory that the memory allocator tries to cache, uh, but does not free, free back to the kernel. And so you have less waste. But this also results in a minor performance penalty which may or may not matter to you. You might see a performance reduction of uh, 5% or 10%, depending on your workload. But uh, if you do not have that much traffic, then that probably does not matter to you. Yeah, the way I look at it, it's like being a train or a bus, like a you know TARP bus or something, stopping, filling up people on the bus. Maybe you only got the bus 10% full and then you start driving on. Well, you can't put any more people on that bus because the bus is in motion. So then another bus comes. So now you have two buses carrying the number of people that could fit on one bus. Whereas if the first bus just kind of stayed still for 10 seconds longer, then it could have fit all the people on there and then the bus could go on. Yeah, a lot of problems are uh, that sort of trade-off. So when we're talking about memory, I guess that's a theme today. When we're specifically talking about virtual servers, so servers that are virtualizing the memory or using their host OS's memory, what about swap? Where does swap come into play on these virtual machines? Is that something that we should avoid completely? Or should we still keep swap enabled and some space allocated in the event that we run out of memory on that virtual machine? Swap is completely unrelated to the memory uh, bloat problem. So um, yeah. uh, swap, ha- swap has no effect on that. But if you're asking on whether you should have swap at all, then um, my advice nowadays is in general, no, because RAM nowadays is so, so cheap. And you generally don't want things to get slow when you hit swap. So it's just easier nowadays to get a lot of memory. This used not to be the case back when mem- memory was more expensive. But nowadays, I, I, I would just say, just don't bother. Just get a lot of memory. But I say this as a general advice. If your traffic is very variable and sometimes you may get a peak, then it might be a good idea to have some swap just for those small spikes that you, you might have. And, but it's really hard to say what is good advice for everybody. And I advise everybody to experiment. But in yeah. general, don't, don't use your swap too much. Don't rely on it too much. If you hit swap too much, then your performance goes down the drain. Yeah. I think a swap is kind of a safety net where... Your main goal is to serve a product to an end user 
And in order for you to do that, the service has to be alive to serve those requests. In the event that you run out of memory, you know, if this is one fail point, then the swap can be your safety net that's still going to serve that request. But proper monitoring on the application should be set up and alerts created when you exceed a certain percentage of memory. So my default is to always have swap enabled on a virtual machine, but then to have the appropriate alerts to say, hey, you're using over 90% memory usage. Now you're using over 100%. Now you're hitting swap. But at least the requests are still being handled, even if it is a few seconds slower. So we can get in there and fix the root cause of the issue or try to figure out what the root cause is without interrupting the client's access to the service. Yeah, that's that's generally what I do as well. Yeah. So I'll go set up what I affectionately call Nag iOS or Nagios and uh, have it monitor my memory usage. And essentially then it'll ping me and say, hey, you know, you're getting high on memory. And then, yeah, if it, if it kind of hops over into swap, then at least the server stays up until I can get to it and say, okay, you know, here's, here's some more space. So beyond J.E. Malik and, you know, that magical environment variable, are there any other tips that you have for managing memory? Are there th- ways that we can write our apps so that they make this problem less bad? No, in, in, in general, no. Ruby as a language makes it very hard for you to write really um, to write apps that are very memory efficient. With some changes in the language or maybe some changes in the standard library, things might become better. But uh, as of right now, no. The biggest tip I have, and it probably does does not have that much effect, but it has a little bit of effect, is to use frozen string literals. I believe Ruby 2.2 or 2.3 introduced this. If you set frozen string literal true uh, as a comment at the start of your file, uh, and I'm not sure whether 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 that is the right magical keyword, but there is some kind of keyword to enable this feature, then what happens is that every time you type a string, you have a string literal in your code, Ruby won't try to allocate memory for that. But instead it will uh, return a frozen string instance. And that results in a lot less garbage if you have a lot of string literals in your code. But there's a compatibility concern because if you rely on strings being mutable, that will break your code. So what I try to do in all my code is to have that is to have that feature on um, by default and I only turn it off in case I need mutable strings in a lot of places or um, there's some other compatibility concern. I'm so guilty of that. <laughs> Horrible. So when the whole frozen string literal set to true thing came out, I'm like, oh, sweet. I can get some, uh, free up some memory here. So went through my application, just put it in on all the Ruby files. And I'm like, I'm not mutating any strings. I should be fine. Yeah, that was not the case. Luckily, my CI test caught that. I'm like, why are we getting errors here? All I added was a stupid comment in my Ruby code. No, I was mutating some strings in one of my files and it just blew it up. But luckily that was caught before shipping to production. You know, thank goodness for automated tests. But yeah, that's a pretty cool thing. And I think a Ruby version is adding that by default. 
even without it set. So you would have to explicitly set string literal to false. I can't remember what version of Ruby that is. Yeah, I, I, I also forgot. I also wonder too, again, going back to the idea of uh, magic, right? There are a lot of things that Rails does to, I, I mean, for me that I don't always know about. And so I wonder a little bit if you go and set a flag like that, if it, that's going to come back around and bite you under certain circumstances. You know, after my analysis of this memory bloat problem, I just come to the conclusion that a lot of the memory usage is just overhead from the system and that the, that the memory usage at the Ruby layer, it's actually not so bad. And sure, you could still further improve it. But I mean, compared to the bloat itself, it's really not that bad. So the best way, the biggest thing that the, that the community should solve is the memory bloating problem. And then everything comes after. So would you classify this as more or less the biggest problem that we have in Ruby? Or are there other things that we run into that you think are more important for us to address first? It would be very hard for me to speak on behalf of other people on what they think is important. But I would definitely say that this that the memory bloating problem is in the top 10 of problems. I have seen that after publishing my work, my Twitter has been going, uh, it's been going crazy with people retweeting that or commenting on that. And it is obvious that I have hit a big nerve. So a lot of people care about this memory issue. And I've even come across people who's, who claim that they left Rails because of the memory bloating problem and they might come back if it is ever solved. Well, I don't, I don't know whether they would come back, but um, to me, being more efficient is always a good thing. And after memory efficiency, I would say that performance uh, would, be, would be a good thing to tackle. My hope is that someday Ruby would be as fast as JavaScript. So this is a bit of an off-topic. Why is Ruby not as fast as JavaScript? They're both interpreted languages, right? So where's the difference in speed? I know I wanted to come in and go, oh, you didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'm not an expert on this topic, so I cannot comment on the technicalities of why. But from a more social perspective, JavaScript has a lot of backers that have a lot of money. For example, the guy who works on V8, I heard that he's the same guy who worked for 20 years on high-performance uh, interpreted languages. And, and, and so, yeah, if you are Google and you hire that guy to work in JavaScript, things are going to be great. If I look at Ruby, then there's not much money going on in this community, and there's not a lot of full-time hired experts that have dedicated to their entire career to solving this problem. And that's, I think, the reason why Ruby has not become as fast as JavaScript. Although I have heard uh, here and there that there are some real language level problems that prevent Ruby from being optimized as well as JavaScript, uh, which is why JRuby has compatibility issues, that there there are various things that uh, JRuby refuses to do uh, because it would hurt performance. And yeah, there are certain things in Ruby that are, let's say, a bit too convenient for its own sake. Yeah, uh, developer Lars, um, he's the one that we, we've talked to on JavaScript Jabber. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. I put a link to the Wikipedia page as well. But yeah, he worked on Smalltalk and Java VMs 
And then, yeah, he wound up working for Google on Chrome and built out V8. And then he also um, was one of the inventors of the Dart programming language. So, so yes, he's done a ton of work on VMs. So what's keeping you busy now? What are you working on right now? Uh, I'm not allowed to comment on that, unfortunately. <gasps> Top secret. No, nobody Got listens it. to this. Nobody. As long as you're enjoying it, right? So were the some of the feature highlights from Passenger 5 to Passenger 6? Uh, the biggest one is generic language support. We support all programming languages. We support Go. We support Rust. We support Java, uh, Elixir, everything nowadays. That is the biggest thing that, that, that we have put uh, our time into. And also the documentation has improved a lot. Yeah, you mentioned that earlier that you essentially uh, tell Passenger how to boot your application. One thing that I'm curious about is with all of these different languages being supported, do you write some kind of memory or not memory, but language service, sort of like what VS Code and things do in order to get like syntax highlighting and stuff? Or how does that work? Um, no, we don't. We actually work more on the operating system level. So I, I, I said earlier that there is this trend nowadays with, uh, with other languages following this pattern of spinning up a, an embedded web server and then, and, and then expecting you to attach that to a reverse proxy. We are actually capitalizing on that trend. And this is why Passenger follows the approach of accepting a command string that is supplied by the user that tells Passenger how to start the app and the Passenger will just start that and then manage that service and basically take care caring of the reverse proxy process for you. But, but actually, if you look at how this works fundamentally, then it's, still, it's actually the same model as what happens with Ruby. If you run a Ruby application in Passenger, actually the same thing happens, except that you don't have to tell Passenger how to start your application because Passenger already knows that. So feature-wise, it is very similar. One thing I have noticed in the past few years is that the developer community has become more and more fragmented in the sense that there are lots of programming languages nowadays, and it's not converging to a small number. It's becoming more and more. Same thing for the number of libraries. And I find that very discouraging in, in, in a way. I mean, it's great in some ways that you have a lot more choice now uh, and different languages are optimized for different use cases. But I also find it kind of sad that there's so much duplication between different communities. And everybody has to, to write their own versions of Rake, their own version of a package manager, their own version of an HTTP library, of an HTTP throttling plugin, or whatever. And there's not much cooperation going on between the communities. And I'm hoping that with Passenger 6, I've made a first step towards helping the community to standardize a bit, uh, a bit more. Because there's no reason why each language should have its own application server that works in its own way, that has its own configuration options, that has its own idiosyncrasies. And we see that one reason why Docker is so popular is because it helps standardization. And no matter which language you are using on, other teams can still collaborate with you. And I'm hoping that Passenger helps people in the same way, that it doesn't matter what languages uh, you or maybe other teams in your organization uses, you can still standardize on a single application server and standardize certain procedures and features. So speaking of other languages, do you see any future for WebAssembly? And if so, 
integration into Passenger? I do not know. Uh, I do not know much about WebAssembly, uh, so there's not much I can comment on. Fair enough. As a Ruby developer, you've probably used Redis for queuing and caching. But if you're like me, you've never completely understood it. You just followed the tutorial to set it up and then hoped it'd stay up. Now that I'm building my own services for other people, I realize that you and I often don't have the desire or time to run an ops or DevOps team or do it yourself. Plus, since you're not a Redis expert, you're not exactly sure how to know what it's doing. That's why I love Redis Green. No setup. It runs on any AWS region I want, so I can run it near me. And the tooling is amazing. I have to tell you about this feature, actually. It actually maps the memory you're using and tells you where all the memory is allocated. So this makes it really easy to see what's going on in your Redis setup. It also runs on AWS, so it scales easily and can alert you when it hits certain thresholds in performance or capacity. Sorry for going all fanboy on you, but I love this tool. Here's the thing. If you don't want to do ops or are already on Heroku or something, then use Redis Green for the rest. It's simple yet powerful. Check them out at redisgreen.net. Dave, do you want to start us off with picks? Yeah, sure. So some non-techie picks here. The first is Legos. My son is now reaching the age where he just absolutely loves Legos. So the other day I picked up the Hulkbuster Lego set and he just he enjoys building those with me so that was a lot of fun the second pick is uh samsonite luggage so i'll be flying out to utah soon and i absolutely hate airports so i hate checking in luggage them losing luggage and all that stuff so went to costco of course and picked up a little carry-on certified carry-on samsonite luggage bag that i can just take on the plane with me and never have to check in luggage. So I think I was able to fit a week's worth of clothes in that little bag. Nice. Eric, do you have some picks for us? First, I'd like to, to pick the Ruby Rogues podcast. Uh, this is my last podcast that I'll be doing on here. Life is getting pretty busy and we're likely going to be launching a new podcast soon. So that being the case, this is going to be my, my final send-off. I appreciate all of you guys. I appreciate the opportunity to, to share thoughts with you guys. And uh, Hongli, I'm most appreciative to have you be my final Ruby podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure to meet you. You've been one of my longtime uh, heroes and uh, best wishes to you for sure. I'm going to pick something that, of course, is dear to my heart. It's something I've been working on for about two years now, which is CodeFund.io. CodeFund is an open source ethical advertising platform that's built for developers to help them fund their open source projects. Our goal is to get money in your hands. If you have a project that you would like to get funding for and are okay with ethical ads, which are non-tracking ads, we'd love to talk to you. Reach out to us, codefund.io. Again, (laughs) thanks for letting me plug my own thing, but um, we do love helping developers and uh, our, what, we, what we like to say is we help uh, maintainers, bloggers, and builders of the open source ecosystem. We want to help you get money. Thank you, guys. Awesome. Yeah, um, I was going to say I'll miss talking to you, but we are pulling together that uh, open source sustainability podcast. So I, I'll just talk to you over there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I wanted to shout out about that. I, I think this episode comes out in a couple of weeks. Keep an eye out for that open source sustainability podcast. I tend to like to get three, four, five episodes in the RSS feed before we launch. So we're probably looking at a month before we have anything out there from when we record this. Maybe a little bit longer, just depending on what our schedule is. But yeah, Eric and I and a few other folks are getting together uh, next week. 
virtually, and we're going to talk through kind of the final details and, and get the ball rolling there. So uh, keep an eye out for that. A couple of other things. I'm going to plug my own stuff as well. I'm starting a couple of new podcasts that are not coding related. And that is for a project that I've been working on for the last few years called PodWrench. And it is a term that I've coined for it is it's a podcast assembly line. So you bring in your workers, that's your editors, your show notes folks, you know, anybody who helps you with scheduling and social media. And uh, this system essentially just gives them all the tools they need in order to build your podcast and podcast community. So, you know, it's, a, it's an assembly line for that. I am going to have an option in there for us to provide the, the workers and then it becomes a sort of, what did I call it? A podcast laboratory, you know, where we have people in there uh, doing the stuff for you. But yeah, so if you're interested in that, the podcasts that I'm starting are actually called Podcast Assembly Line and Podcast Laboratory. So uh, you can check those out. Probably also going to start a YouTube channel for people who want to start podcasting. So yeah, um, that, then that'll be pretty much immediately available. PodWrench itself is going to be in beta. So, uh, you know, you can come and try it out and let me know what you think. And I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, I'm excited for all of that. And then I'm also just going to shout out about a couple of the conferences that I'm going to wind up at. So if you're going to be at any of them, let me know. Um, I'm going to be in Seattle for um, Microsoft Build. So if you're going to be in the Seattle area, let me know. Or if you live there, let me know. Because I'm definitely cool with, you know, skipping part of the conference and, you know, grabbing some food with you. That would be fun. And then a few other ones. I'm trying to make my way out to OzCon, which is in July in Portland, and um, ElixirConf. And I'm, I think that's in September. I'm also looking at uh, making it out to FinCon, which is a financial blogging conference. That's more on the podcasting end of things. And then I will be at Podcast Movement. So if you're going to be, or if you live near Orlando, I'm going to be out there in August. So uh, let me know. And again, I'm, I'm happy to skip part of the conference and grab some food. So... Anyway, yeah, happy to meet people. And yeah, please check out the um, podwrench.com and let me know what you think there. Hongli, what are your picks? I pick an app called Blinkist. They are a company who makes summaries of nonfiction books. For example, management books, uh, psychology books, self-help books, productivity books. One of the problems I have is that there are a lot, lot of books that are interesting and that might help me, but they're too long. And I just don't have time or patience to read 200, 300 pages. And this company, they make summaries that you can read or listen to in something like 20 minutes. So that's great. Nice. Very cool. We had a friend uh, of mine, Manny, on who does the same kind of things at 2000 Books. So I'm going to just shout out about that too if you're looking for another source of summarized books. By the way, I'm also speaking at Yuruko um, in, uh, um, later this year. So that's uh, the biggest uh, European Ruby conference. Nice. When, when and where is that? It is in the Netherlands, in the city of Rotterdam. Let me look it up. It is June 21st and 22nd. It's going to be held inside a ship. Nice. So do you fly into Amsterdam and then take a train out to Rotterdam? Well, I live in Amsterdam, so I just take a train there. Right. I, I meant if I came. If you come, then you could definitely do that. Cool. So if any of you are in the Netherlands, um, please come uh, see me. On, um, let's have coffee. Sounds great. And how do they find you in order to do that? Um, do they just email you or yeah, find you on Twitter? Yeah, just email me. Just email me. Or send me a Twitter. It's also fine. 
I have lots of contact details um, all over the place. Very cool. All right. Well, thank you, Hongli, for coming and talking to us about all this stuff. I mean, some of it's a little bit complicated and some of it, you know, you can kind of go as far down the rabbit hole as you want. So, yeah, but it's nice to just kind of get in and see, okay, what is this system doing to me under the hood and what can I do to make it better? So thanks. And thanks again for Passenger. It, it really is a lifesaver in a lot of ways. You're welcome. I'm just glad to help. All right. We'll go ahead and wrap this up, folks, and we will be back next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.